Welcome to Boston Confidential, Beantown's true crime podcast. Boston is a great city, but there's more to it than the Freedom Trail and Fenway Park. There's a startling underbelly to the city, and Boston Confidential will take you on a guided tour of the hub of the universe, Boston, Massachusetts. Hey everybody, welcome back to Boston Confidential. My name's Barry McGuire, and I'm your host. I'm a 20-year private investigator on the streets of Boston and I help run a company called Impact Due Diligence Investigations. If you need anything in terms of investigative services, feel free to contact me at Impact. If I can't help you personally, I'll certainly direct you to the right person or agency. All right, guys, let's get to it. Just some housekeeping stuff before we get started. We had a massive response to the Aaron Hernandez trioka of episodes we produced. I hope everybody else enjoyed those episodes. I enjoyed it, and I know I mentioned this previously, it makes me long for a longer format podcast, and I'm looking into that. And I know I mentioned at the end of the series that I had a case in mind to jump off on that point, and I'll keep you posted as we go. But as I mentioned, it's from the old hometown, and it's a big ask of the people involved, so I have to be cognizant of that. If you want to get a hold of me, my email is barry at bostonconfidential.net and be businesslike at a minimum in these emails. Something strange happened to me. I don't know, not last week. I know we ran a replay last week, but somebody had written in to me. She was a journalism student from one of the overpriced colleges in the city of Boston. And she wanted to interview me. She was a journalism major and she wanted to interview me and like record it on Zoom and use it for a podcast later. I kind of got an odd feeling from this woman and I was going to do it regardless, but I didn't get back with her right away only because I was super busy with those three episodes concerning Aaron Hernandez. And, you know, I was going to do it, but shortly thereafter, she leaves a review for the podcast, something about a private investigator, me, criticizing the ethics of journalists, I guess her. And I don't really remember doing that to a large extent. I guess I did it in the Netflix series, but I don't know if I really did. It was really focused on Netflix or HBO, whomever really produced that. But the ethics behind that, I wonder if this journalism student will go to her professor and say, geez, I tried to get an interview with somebody and they didn't respond within 24 hours. So I gave them a bad review. Go to your journalism ethics professor with that one, young lady. And I advise you to apply directly to CNN when you get out. You're going to fit in really well in the journalism community, no doubt. All right, guys, we got to jump back into the Wayback Machine today. We got to go back, what is it, 31 years to 1991. So it's 1991 in the city of Boston. And organized crime is run mostly by La Casa Nostra, or maybe that had just come to an end in the North End. But they shared power with the Winter Hill Gang led by Whitey Bulger. And I don't have to go in so much to Whitey's past, but he was from South Boston, as I am. And growing up there, it was actually just part of the landscape. You didn't really consider it organized crime. It was just life. There was a lot of gambling everywhere and stuff like that. 
And you'd hear the stories of James Whitey Bulger, Kevin Weeks, and all those guys. And just a quick history of it, Whitey Bulger was head of the Winter Hill Gang, which ran the Irish areas of Boston, Charlestown, Somerville, South Boston, and you know some smaller jurisdictions inside and outside of Boston proper. They controlled gambling, narcotics, everything, really. They ran the rackets like La Costa Nostra does, you know, like you see in Goodfellas or whatever. The very Boston thing about Whitey Bulger and the Winter Hill Gang is James Whitey Bulger, his brother, was Senate President William Bulger, who was literally the most powerful politician in Massachusetts. He even eclipsed the governor guys. And it was just a strange state. It was uniquely Boston. And the story I'm going to tell you right now is uniquely Boston, almost enough to make you chuckle if it wasn't for at least one or two of the guys involved. So it's late summer, 1991, and all of a sudden on the news, you start to hear that Whitey Bulger had just won the lottery. And this was 1991, but there were some new games coming in with these larger jackpots. They have Powerball now, but I don't think that was active then. This game was called Mass Millions, and it was twice a week. And if you didn't hit the jackpot, if nobody hit the jackpot, it would just roll over. And by this time, during that summer, it had rolled over several times. And the pot was like $14.5 million. And so within the neighborhood, we heard it quicker than word got out. But the word did get out. And my God, it hit with a splash. I have to tell you, it was national news. Boston's leading gangster shows up at lottery headquarters with the winning ticket and a few friends in tow. So everybody thinks, geez, Jim Bulger, Whitey Bulger, and the Winter Hill Gang somehow fixed the Massachusetts State Lottery. And the newspapers go into a frenzy all over the country. The lottery immediately starts an investigation into the lottery machines themselves. And this was televised, so everybody saw it. And the cops could look in on this and say, you know, was anything untoward during this draw? And there wasn't. So they were thinking some other way. This had to be some other way. And keep in mind, guys, that the jackpot was 14.5-ish million dollars. Sounds like a great score today. I'd take it any day of the week. But 1991, it was even better. The equivalent in today's money would be about $28, $29 million. So just think along those lines, almost 30 mil, guys. So everybody around town was kind of cracking up that Whitey beat the system to this extent. Keep in mind, it wasn't really known that James Whitey Bulger and later Stephen the Rifleman Fleming, his partner, were confidential federal informants. That wouldn't come out till a few years later. During this time, and during all times, really, I think James Whitey Bulger was under various investigations, but he was also under an IRS, they call it a lifestyle investigation, right? Where, how are you driving a brand new black Lincoln Continental, and you have a condo, and you have this with no viable sources of income, and he was under one of those investigations, and this solved that problem 
like you wouldn't believe because now he was going to have legitimate money coming in and he could give the finger to the IRS. And he had already corrupted the FBI. He had already corrupted the Mass State Police and the Boston police were on his pad as well. So in gangster land, things are going swimmingly once you get the IRS off your ass, right? So Jim Bulger shows up at the lottery headquarters along with a few other guys. Kevin Weeks, one of his main partners in organized crime, and the Linsky brothers, Michael Linsky and Pat Linsky. So that's four people here now. Four people. Keep that in mind. It was said that Michael Linsky was the one who bought the ticket, and it was a season ticket. And in those days, and I think you still can do this, you can buy a season ticket and they give you a few dollars off of the, you know, 52-week price. So it's kind of a good deal. You don't have to worry about playing your lottery numbers every day. It's set for the year, right? So Michael Linsky plays that, and that's the one, that's the number that hits the lottery, and it's sold out of the South Boston Liquor Mart. The South Boston Liquor Mart was taken over by Whitey Bulger and Kevin Weeks, some years before from a local guy by the name of Stephen Rakes. There's a long story behind that, and we're going to definitely have to get into the Whitey Bulger saga and John Conley, his handler at the FBI. We'll do that at some point in the podcast. But just keep in mind, the store that Linsky won this in was taken in the gangster move by Whitey Bulger from Stephen Rakes, what is said to have had happened by Stephen Rakes is they visit him at his apartment. They put a gun on the table. They take his baby daughter and put the baby on Kevin Weeks's lap or something like that. It's a massive threat. These guys are violent. Everybody knows it. And they put like fifty dollars or $65,000 in cash on the table and said, well, now we own the liquor store. We need an influx of cash, legitimate cash and all that. And that's how they stole South Boston Liquor Mart from Stephen Rakes. And then they go on to win a $14.5 million jackpot. This is so Boston. I just, I'm so sorry. It's just funny. So due to the fact that Linsky had purchased the ticket at the liquor mart, Whitey is almost immediately notified, right, because they own it. And the owner is alerted that they have sold a winning ticket, obviously, because there's a reward. I think now it's about $25,000 if you sell, you know, the main prize. It must have been less then, but they still get a stipend and they're alerted. So now they know, hey, who bought those tickets? And believe me, you're not going to sneak out of town without Whitey Bulger knowing about it. And they traced it back to Michael Linsky. So it was said that Michael Linsky actually worked at the liquor store, and I believe that to be true. And his brother Pat was also involved within Jim Bulger's organization. I believe he may have been more over towards the gambling side, let's say. That had been rumored, never proven, but often discussed. So I think it happens pretty quickly that Michael Linsky realizes he's hit the jackpot, obviously, because you'll check your numbers each night. And back then, the jackpots weren't like you see today. You always see 100 million, 200 million. For 
1991 in Massachusetts, that $14.5 million prize was just astronomical. Again, in today's money, it's $30 million almost, right? So he is ecstatic, but pretty soon Jim Bulger comes a-knocking, and when Jim comes a-knocking, he's going to get what he wants, much like the liquor store, right? So it was rumored that Michael was going to be one partner. He was going to be a 50% partner. Jim Bulger, Kevin Weeks, and Pat Linsky would be the other 50% partner. Those three would split 50%, and Michael would get the 50% just to himself. So I guess that's a good deal. What was rumored at the time, and it's been in a few of the books about South Boston at the time, was that Jim Bulger finds out, and he had been under that IRS investigation, so he says to Linsky, here's 700000 Put Kevin and I on the books for a portion of this. So he gives him 700000 in cash, ends up losing a crap ton of money on it, but it's better than the alternative. So now Jim and Kevin Weeks is a partner, and he was going to be a partner with his brother at any rate anyways, right? So that's what that is. So lottery officials, state officials were in a tither. They tried to keep the money from these guys, but there was no legal reason why they should or could. But everybody thought it was casting doubt on the lottery itself, right? Because it's still assumed there's a little part of you somewhere. If Jim Bulger's involved with this, it's got to be some type of chisel, right? It's got to be some type of scam. And it was. It just wasn't on the lottery end. It was on the winner's end, you dig? Something to also be cognizant of, guys, is they didn't have back then in the 90s the option to take the full prize in one fell swoop. They were going to pay it out to you in an annuity over 20 years. And today you can choose either the annuity or the full payout right away. And the full payout is so much more money because when you invest it, it's just more money. And I'll have to explain that to you. But the Linskys didn't have that option. So they took the annuity. And Whitey Bulger, I think he walked out that day out of lottery headquarters with a check for about $89,000. And it would go up a little bit progressively as the years went on and stuff. But the first check that Whitey walked out, and I believe Kevin Weeks as well, was for $89,000 each. So that IRS investigation, now Whitey Bulge is totally bulletproof because he can spend almost 90 grand, you know, so that'll account for the condo in Quincy, that'll account for the car and everything else, you know, so he can always say, yeah, all that money comes from the lottery, which I won fair and square with the guy who works at the store I stole from Stephen Rakes, right? So on a serious note, I think... Michael Linsky and his brother Pat were going to share the proceeds regardless. I think they may have went into these season tickets together as partners, right? But they turn around and there's two of the most crazed mass killers in Boston underworld history right there with them, or at least alleged killers, right? In terms of Kevin Weeks, he had never been convicted, but... James Whitey Bulger had been convicted in several murders and responsible for many, many more. The section of this partnership I feel bad for is the Linskys themselves. Like I said, they may have been involved in the organization, 
on one level. They're not on the Kevin Weeks level, but they were working in the store and I suppose in the organization as well. Again, that's speculation. It's alleged they've never been convicted, but that was the story and it seemed to be pretty accurate in the neighborhood anyway. So I do feel bad for them because now they would have had their lives set, right? And they have to now deal with Whitey Bulger. And dealing with him on any level is dangerous. And if you're holding money, he claims to be part of, that's very dangerous. But they'd all get their checks. I don't think the Linsky's had to worry about, okay, Jim's check is coming to us. It was split up in, you know, partnerships, almost like separate corporations, where they'll get their own check mailed to them at certain times during the next year and then on for the next 19 or 20 years, whatever it may be, until the payout is done. So this is 1991, and things are starting to spin out of control a little bit for Jim Bulger. This was good news, the lottery thing, but he had so many things going on different fronts that something was bound to give, and pretty soon his world would come undone. So since the early 80s, Jim Bulger had been consolidating power, and what people didn't know was that he was a federal informant and he had a handler by the name of John Conley, who was also from South Boston. And that was supposedly the connection there. But Jim Bulger thoroughly corrupted John Conley pretty quickly. Bulger would also go on to corrupt John Morris, the agent in charge, the supervisory agent in charge for the FBI in Boston. And James Whitey Bulger corrupted him for a very small price. I believe it was like a case of wine and two plane tickets, one for him and one for his mistress. And that's all it took to corrupt an FBI official. Imagine that, a supervisor. And we'll get into all of this in a separate podcast, but I just want to kind of give you a vibe for the atmosphere that was happening at the time. So in the previous decade, Jim Bulger really made his bones as an informant, but he was also working for himself. I don't like to praise him, but he is kind of a mastermind, a Machiavelli, if you will. So John Conley was tasked by the FBI, and they were tasked nationwide to get La Casa Nostra, the Italian mob, at any cost. And that meant sigging the Irish mob in Boston onto La Casa Nostra, the Angelo crew, right? Because they were partners, but everybody wants an upper hand. So Jim Bulger starts giving information to John Conley. John Conley narrows this down, and Whitey tells him about the clubhouse on Prince Street where the Anjulos hang out. And the FBI devises a way to get in and bug Mafia headquarters on Prince Street in the North End. Totally unheard of. I think it was probably the biggest thing to hurt the mafia in a generation. So this would go on to wipe out the Italian mob. So in 1981, with Bulge's help, the FBI bugs the clubhouse. I think it was like three or four months. And then after that, they round everybody up. And naturally, that just leaves Whitey Bulger, right? And he's not implicated in this. He's not Italian. So nobody's really looking at him. So it's at that point he really consolidates power. He's definitely now 
New England's top criminal. The Italians would come to him. You know, he didn't disrespect them, but they'd come to him and ask for help and all this. And they worked together, you know. And these tapes that were made at the Prince Street Clubhouse would show how much the Italians respected the Winter Hill Gang. At one point in some of these tapes, and it was fodder for the media for years, that say, yeah, we tell Winter Hill to go break somebody's legs. They're there the next day at 7 a.m. And another portion I remember just off the top of my head, Angelo is telling an underling, hey, listen, you don't mess with the hill. The hill is us, and we're with them. And that's how it goes. Don't cross the hill. Stuff like that, you know? So by 1983, the Italian mob trials in Boston were over. The Angelos, were, and they were the acting underbosses. Jerry Angelo was underboss. His brother was something similar. The Boston Mafia was decimated, and that just leaves Jim Bulger. So from about 83 to 91, Jim Bulger was just consolidating his power and getting bigger and bigger. Nobody really suspected for quite a while that Jim Bulger would be a rat, an informant, right? But that's the business they're in. Jim Bulger didn't know it, but time was getting short for him in Boston. One of the deals he made with his handler, his FBI handler, John Conley, was when indictments were about to come down for Whitey Bulger, Kevin Weeks, and Stephen the Rifleman Flemmy, they wanted a head start. And John Conley, by that time, had retired from the FBI, but still had his contacts. And he hears at the federal courthouse there's indictments against all three. And he tells Whitey. And Whitey hit the road immediately within hours. They said he always kept bags packed, money stashed around the country, and he was gone. Stephen, the rifleman Fleming and Kevin Weeks got the same head start, but the rifleman Fleming kind of hung around. He was actually in the process of buying homes on Marlboro Street when I think he was arrested. He had purchased a lot of real estate going forward, but he gets pinched, bulges gone, and I think Kevin Weeks gets arrested a short time later. So this occurs in 1994, late 1994, Bulger gets the message from Conley to hit the road, and he does. So he only had a few years, I don't know, three, maybe four payments to enjoy from the lottery before he had to hit the road. So in 1995, after he had fled, the Lottery Commission and the powers that be in the state of Massachusetts made some legal maneuvers to confiscate Whitey Bulger's checks. This was a real black eye on the state of Massachusetts and the Lottery Commission, right? Because how do you explain this? How do you explain this that one of the country's largest organized criminals is a lottery winner from one of your new games, right? So it was a total embarrassment. By 95, they shut that off. Kevin Weeks was eventually convicted in the conspiracy thousand different charges there but he only did a few years because he turned state's evidence and all this so the linskys continued getting their checks theirs was at least halfway legitimate right before bulger and weeks muscled in so i think the linskys if i remember correctly family wise ended up with a 
crap ton of problems over this. I know they had some deaths in the family due to drugs and all this. They had a son about my age, and I don't think life was pretty good for that kid, and he's no longer with us from what I remember. So they had a lot of problems after this, and you would think it would be the golden years, right? Almost in today's money, $30 million. But you got this chiseler. (laughs) You bought it at his store, right? So he knows about it. It's like you can't run away. So Bulger hit the road in late 1994, and it'd stay on the lam until 2011. Some say in the Boston area that the FBI wasn't too hot to catch James Whitey Bulger because of the relationship between the criminal and the most vaunted investigative agency in the world, right? He corrupted them on the cheap guys, but he ends up getting pinched in 2011 and he goes on trial and it's probably the biggest trial, the most, one of the most interesting trials in Boston history. It's right down at the federal courthouse in the seaport section, probably just three or four miles from where Whitey Bulger was born. So Jim Bulger was ultimately convicted of, I believe, all the charges against him. There were several murders and, you know, general gangsterism, extortion, the whole nine yards. I think he ended up with two life sentences plus 25 years. And he goes away to the joint. But by 2018, they're moving Jim Bulger from one federal pen to another. And as he is coming into this new prison, He's beaten with locks by, I believe it was two assailants. And it was also said, and I'd never heard this before, but I had come upon this during my research for this case, said that Jim Bulger's eyes were taken out with a knife. And it was a really brutal beating. And it was a real black eye on the federal prison service. I think two people lost their job over it. But... Somehow, somewhere, somebody got to Jim Bulger and it wasn't pretty. And I think that's just karma. And guys, you know, I know I had a few laughs during this podcast because this lottery caper is just so achingly Boston. But I do realize that Jim Bulger was an animal, a killer. He killed Brian Halloran. He killed Deborah Hussey. And he was just a brutal bastard. So... Don't think I'm laughing at all of that. It's just this one section where the lottery winning (laughs) by James Whitey Bulger, I just find it hysterical, really. It's so Boston. It aches. All right, guys, I think I'm going to leave you there. We're going to have to do more on the Whitey Bulger saga in Boston. Man, it's a crazy, crazy thing that the FBI protected this guy and other law enforcement agencies as well. But... I'll leave you there, guys, and get on to the next one for you. And I'll see you on the flip side. Take care.